0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The National Park Service may protect iconic lands, but it's not protecting its workers. That's according to High Country News, whose investigation has caught Congress's attention. For a year, reporters there dug into claims of sexual harassment, assault, and gender discrimination within the agency. Lindsay Gilpin wrote the cover story, and one of her sources is former superintendent of the Colorado National Monument, Joan Anselmo. Welcome to both of you. Lindsay, you did some initial digging a year ago after the Interior Department released a report on sexual harassment at the Grand Canyon. It found that women had been sexually harassed for years and that park and regional administrators had known and failed to stop it. When you published that original story, High Country News did a call-out asking to hear from current and former Park Service employees about their experiences. And what was the response like to that call-out, Lindsay?
1: Yeah, we got an immediate response when we put up the tip form on HCN.org, Probably within the week, we had uh, you know in the double digits number of women and some men reporting things that they had witnessed or um, harassment, gender discrimination, abuse that had happened to them throughout their careers. Some ranging all the way back from you know the '70s and '80s and not being promoted um, through the system, not climbing the ladder as they should have been, all the way up till today when uh, women are still struggling uh, with harassment on the job in the field um, out in, in our national parks. So in the year that we had the tip form up online, it's still up now, but in the year that I investigated, we got about 90 tips total and probably 60 of those were National Park Service employees. The others were different federal agency employees such as Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service.
0: You mentioned men and women replied. Were men the subject of some of this behavior?
1: No, actually, we got quite a few um, responses in of men that had witnessed uh, some of these behaviors Mm -hmm. and uh, had faced retaliation themselves for standing up for women or against misogyny in the parks and on the job.
0: You open your story, How the National Park Service is Failing Women, with Olivia. She asked you not to use her last name Olivia told you that working for the Park Service was her dream job and had been since she was a kid. She got the dream job in 2010 in the form of an internship at Death Valley in Southern California. What does she say happened when she began at the Park Service?
1: So Olivia began at Death Valley and she she lived in a dorm with uh, several other interns and, and co-workers at Death Valley that were all about her age. Uh, she said that she asked a coworker, a male, for a ride home or I'm sorry, to a cabin that she was house sitting at, mm-hmm. And he invited himself into the house with her, uh, and she kind of tried to, to get him to leave and he he didn't and eventually he he tried to come on to her and held her down on the ground uh for twenty minutes or so trying to, to kiss her and to um and she was very scared that something was going to happen to her that she, you know, was trapped in this house with him. She eventually got him off and had him leave. and he um, went and found a friend to confide in. and so she she had k- kind of came to terms with the fact that she had been assaulted and was trying to figure out what to do. So she went to her chief ranger at the park and the chief uh, another chief uh, supervisor. And when she told them, they said that they could handle it internally at the park or she could press charges and kind of confused and scared. She didn't know what to do. So she said that they could handle it, figuring it, figuring that they would somehow deal or discipline with, um, deal with this. And instead she got called back a few days later and they told her that it was a misunderstanding that they had talked to the guy that she says assaulted her. And, he kind of corroborated some of her story and that they just figured it was a misunderstanding and um, said that they weren't going to push it any further. So being young and this being her first job, she didn't really push it any farther and was kind of let it go. he actually ended up staying in her dorm for a week and it it took them a week or two to move him. And when they moved him, it was across the street in another dorm. And uh, a complaint came from someone over there that was a, a young woman who was concerned about living with this guy because she had heard what happened. So it just, her situation really showed kind of the roadblocks in the system when women try to report these things, because Olivia had no idea that there was a formal reporting process that she could opt for.
0: You call, in fact, the park services processes for reporting harassment murky. Uh, Why murky?
1: It's murky in several ways. And the biggest reason is because there's, there's so many layers of, um, and and chains of command to go up to get anything taken care of. The processes are are relatively new, uh, you know, a few decades old. Basically, there's an NPS process, and then there's the um, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission process. So when a woman feels that she has been discriminated against or uh, harassed, she is supposed to tell her supervisor and not anyone above that, and the supervisor is supposed to take it to their supervisor. And um, she's... Supposed to contact um, what they call an, an EEO counselor, who should walk her through, for instance, you know what the what she should do about and who she should tell. So basically, they would have some sort of mediation with the person she's accusing and and her, and try to see if you can work it out without reporting it formally. Uh, so a lot of people drop off, drop off at that point because it's a lot of work and it's reiterating the story several times and talking to multiple people about it. And, and these are sensitive issues. And, and that becomes very difficult for a lot of employees. Uh, And after that, it goes through a bunch of paperwork and kind of back and forth to decide with, you know, with the, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, if this constitutes harassment, and um, and what exactly needs to happen, discipline wise, and even then, uh, you know, no one has to be held accountable, no one has to be um, disciplined within the agency, and eventually, a woman can get to uh, a lawsuit against the Department of the Interior, it would be for the National Park Service. But that still doesn't hold anyone accountable, and that could take up to years to get to that point.
2: Gosh,
0: it doesn't sound just murky. It sounds cumbersome.
1: Yeah, yes, very.
0: So, Joan and Zelmo, you started working for the Park Service in the late 70s. Um, I didn't know this, but the agency actually grew out of the U.S. Army. And you say that you noticed there were a lot of sort of traditional, even, quote, macho values in the service. For the first several years, you even wore a different uniform than your male colleagues. In 1980, you became Yellowstone's public information officer, uh, a spokesperson, essentially. And you told High Country News that you noticed vulgar jokes and comments written on the walls there. But at that time, you didn't report it. Um, and I'd like to know why.
3: I think it's important to put it in the context of that era. mm mm-hmm. Um, As you mentioned, I began my career in, actually, 1976 in Washington, D.C. I was quite young, and uh, it was a time where I was inspired by the leaders of the women's movement to even start a career with the National Park Service. It was not something that, as a young person, I had even known about or aspired to do. And then I went on to dedicate 35 years of my life uh, to the National Park Service. So so going back to that 1980 experience, uh, it was not uncommon uh, for there to be a lot of that kind of, you know, vulgar or catcalls or, you know, sort of inappropriate behavior uh, in the workplace. Personally, I didn't experience direct harassment during my tenure, but I was aware of it. And as I moved on through my career into supervisory roles and obviously ultimately as a park superintendent, right. there was absolutely no space for that in any of the areas that I supervised.
0: That is to say what you uh, sort of accepted as just part of the job early on became to you um, just not tolerable. You, you wouldn't make space for that uh, as, as you rose up the ranks.
3: That is correct. And again, I think it's important to remember, you know, working as a young person, a female, in a traditional land management agency in the 1970s was very, very different than it is in present time in many respects. Though Lindsay points out some of the great failings of this agency and no doubt of many other agencies um, who still have turned a blind eye to some of this harassment.
0: Yeah, I think that's an important point, Lindsay. Is this is this exclusive to the National Park Service do you think this is about federal workplaces in general or just in general workplaces?
1: This is applicable and, and happening in and at all workplaces, I think, in many of them, you know, whether it's private or public. And a lot of the, the the issues I focused on in this story, though we're talking about the Park Service, dealt with, um, you know, like I was saying, the, the murky processes that, have, that women and, and men have to go through. To report things through the the EEOC, and so you know, in in this investigation and in other stories that High Country News has done, and because we focused so much on public land agencies, we mm-hmm. saw we saw a lot of um, of these issues in the Forest Service among wildland firefighters, um, and in I, I got some tips, like I said again, uh, from BLM employees, from some state government public land employees, and so it's definitely not. Specific to the Park Service, but I think it provides a really interesting um, storyline to follow uh, and and way to show that it is a microcosm of of kind of what's going on in different workplaces.
0: So, Joan, in 2007, you become superintendent of Colorado National Monuments, and there was an incident you had to address shortly after arriving there. An employee allegedly committed an act of sexual assault that fell to you to deal with. And I understand that the employee resigned just as you were ready to terminate him. You say addressing this as a manager was a real challenge. Just briefly, why?
3: Because the processes are so cumbersome. Uh, An investigation was already underway when I literally moved and arrived to my new position in Colorado. And uh, as I reviewed the documents and actually had meetings with the employee, I started taking steps immediately to uh, expedite his, his removal, his termination. And I arrived in May, and if my memory is, is accurate, it took me until September to uh, finish the process of, of moving right to terminate the employee with all the evidence that was there. Uh, and the day that he knew he was receiving the termination letter, he chose to resign, which is an employee's right. And um, I had to dedicate a lot of extra hours to get through the paperwork and the various contacts that one goes through as a supervisor to move to termination. It requires involvement of the regional office in the case of what I was dealing with, so it wasn't my decision alone. It had several layers of, of, of coordination and ultimate approval by the regional director to allow me to terminate that person.
0: So that's four months it took, essentially. Am I right in doing the math there?
3: That's four months just for me, and there were other employees who preceded me um, who had already been hard at work trying to do the documentation and the uh, process to give the employee a chance to uh, improve. In this case, it wasn't so much an improvement because this was a borderline criminal act, uh, and it occurred after hours uh, in a National Park area in a National Park vehicle And uh, the person who was involved, uh, who was assaulted, chose not to file charges. So, you know, you've got all sorts of complications. But the bottom line is the process is cumbersome. And I think that's where I would encourage the agency to improve its process.
0: I suppose one person's cumbersome is another person's series of safeguards to protect employees who might be wrongly accused. What would you say, Joan, in response?
3: Well, that's absolutely correct. I mean, there's sort of the the protection of an individual employee who has been accused of doing something wrong, whether it's sexual harassment or something something else, um, and then obviously an employee who has alleged some wrong behavior has their own rights. So you have you have multiple layers, policies, and laws, and as I explained to Lindsay Unfortunately, at least in the internal processes, often the same people you rely on in the regional office to represent the employee who alleges a bad action has occurred is the same office that also represents the employee who who may have committed the the act. So uh, I feel that that needs to be separated because you're right, all employees, all people have rights, and until there's enough documentation and proof of something that uh, was done illegal or incorrectly, you can't really take an action until that's verified and proven.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about High Country News's year-long investigation into the National Park Service. Uh, and one of the articles in the series, uh, sort of the cover story that came of it, is called How the National Park Service is Failing Women. And um, Lindsay Gilpin, lead writer on this, is there something about these locations... The remoteness, perhaps, that adds to the vulnerability of the employees. I, I, I don't know. I'm just positing there.
1: You know, that's a question I've gotten a lot, and also something that I think I, I talked about with many of my sources, including Joan here. And you know, that's that's part of it, right? Is that you're in a place like the Grand Canyon that the, the first came out of. These women were on the river, on the Colorado River, on you know, 200. Mile journeys um, with just a couple of men and maybe um, maybe one other person they talked to no cell phone service, no um, contact basically to the outside world and some of them reported that they were um, inappropriately touched or comments were made on you know the first mile of that trip so that's definitely an issue because these some of these parks like uh, grand canyon and yosemite are are cities unto themselves. And um, you know there's all the, the complications of, um, of employee relations and networks and um, not having service and uh, being in a remote location. But I think in this story, I really tried to show that um, though remote, this is happening in all kinds of different parks, no matter their size, um, and there, how many employees there are. And, uh, you know, an example of that was Little Bighorn Battlefield National Monument in Montana, and about an hour away from Billings, Montana. And so not super remote. And um, I, I went through in the story a lot of issues with hostile work environment and um, retaliation and some harassment of um, some female employees that worked there uh, by one specific supervisor. And so I think that it is important to to point out the fact that it is in remote locations, but also that it can uh, and is happening in in various kinds.
0: Yeah, I want to say that uh, your reporting points to two things. One is the acts themselves of sexual harassment or assault, and then the retribution that can follow for the victims or those who report the incidents. Your reporting did get the attention of Congress. What came of that?
1: Yeah, so since I did this and had some help with other other People at High Country News, this series that came out in the summer, I uncovered this, this document that showed that in the year 2000, there was a whole other issue in the Grand Canyon with uh, harassment and discrimination against female law enforcement officers. And it happened, and they created a task force to deal with it. There was a survey of the entire Park Service um, to find out how widespread the problem was, and it it basically kind of just dissolved and nothing ever happened with it. And so once I published that story, Congress um, found that and used that just to show that trying to ask director John Jarvis questions about why it's taken so long to deal with this problem and to come up with some sort of solution to handle something that has been going on for for decades. And so that, that happened and they got that attention. And then since there have been Several other Department of Interior investigations. There was one, uh, you know, in Grand Canyon, in Canaveral National Seashore in Florida, and um, in Chattahoochee River National Recreation Area in Georgia. And there are ongoing investigations in Yellowstone and Yosemite. Congress has kind of um, kept up that pressure on the Park Service to uh, to better understand what's going on and has cited my work in a lot of that. So that's been really, really interesting to see.
0: Yeah. You mentioned John Jarvis. He's now the former Park Service Director. I think he he retired just last week. And a question moving forward, of course, will be uh, to what extent the new Interior Secretary and whoever is nominated to lead the Park Service carries that torch forward. Ladies, thanks so much for being with us.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: So you heard their former High Country News editorial fellow, Lindsay Gilpin. She wrote, How the National Park Service is Failing Women. And you can read it in full at CPRnews.org. It features Joan Anselmo, former superintendent of Colorado National Monument. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. State lawmakers gather today to hear Governor John Hickenlooper deliver his State of the State speech. Yesterday was lawmakers' turn to lay out their vision for the new session. CPR's Vic Vela spoke with my colleague Joanne Allen about what those lawmakers said.
4: Vic, Republicans have a one-vote majority in the Senate. Democrats control the House. What will it take to get anything done this year?
5: Well, perhaps some divine intervention, Joanne. Uh, I got a kick out of some of the things said by a Denver pastor who gave the opening day prayer in the house, and he asked that lawmakers be blessed with the gifts of listening and patience, and they're probably going to need those blessings to get through the 500-plus hours they'll be spending together this session. Uh, But there are a few signs of agreement already.
4: Such as?
5: Well, one of the first bills of the session is a bipartisan effort to change how the courts handle liability for home builders. Uh, A lot of folks blame the existing law for discouraging developers to build condos. And now there appears to be some agreement on how to change it.
4: So this is the law that allows individual homeowners in a condo development to sue over shoddy construction. Republicans and Democrats have tried to work together in the past to revise it, and those efforts have failed. But this time, it's different. How?
5: Well, first off, the bill has some pretty powerful backers, including the Senate president and the incoming House Speaker, Chrysantha Duran. Uh, Duran said that if it passes, the new policy should lower insurance rates for homebuilders, uh, making it easier for developers to build new condos.
3: Let's start this session by making housing more available to middle-class Coloradans without jeopardizing the rights of consumers.
5: This is a big change for Democrats. They blocked past attempts to change this law because they worried homeowners would be left uh, holding the bag.
4: So construction defects was a highlight of the House Speaker's opening day. What about the Senate? Did Senate President Kevin Grantham make any news during his remarks?
5: Oh boy, did he. Uh, Grantham laid out the Senate Republicans' first six bills, and the one that will certainly generate the most controversy is an effort to get rid of Connect for Health Colorado.
4: That's the state health exchange that was created through the Affordable Care Act.
5: Yep. One day into the session and Republicans are already going after Obamacare. And this is, of course, something that's getting a lot of buzz at the national level with the Trump administration coming in and the Republican Congress already moving to dismantle the ACA. uh, Grantham said a repeal of Colorado's health
2: exchange is long overdue. It is time for us to shed some of the dead weight of failed government policy.
5: How did that go over with Democrats. Well, not very well, and it didn't help that Grantham didn't offer any specifics about what, if anything, he'll replace the exchange with.
4: Vic, what about transportation funding? We hear all the time that Colorado doesn't have enough money to keep up with aging roads and a growing population. Do you think the two parties will come together on a solution this session?
5: Well, that's really the question of the session, Joanne. Uh, To a person, each party leader said transportation is a top priority. Grantham says creative solutions may be in order to fund highway infrastructure needs. Uh, Those alone could cost around $9 billion. Uh, Duran said in her speech that all four caucuses are involved in discussions around a transportation funding proposal, uh, which could involve a plan that asks voters to approve tax increases for roads and transit. Uh, But they haven't finalized the details of that yet.
4: And Vic, we are obviously coming off a divisive election. Did the party leaders address the tone of the session at the Capitol?
5: Yes. Duran took aim at what she called divisive language against particular groups of people. And she received a standing ovation from folks on both sides of the aisle when she said this.
3: We cannot tolerate attacks on women and people of color.
4: Were there any other moments of universal agreement in the opening remarks?
5: Well, everyone was gracious and tried to set a collaborative tone, uh, but there's bound to be divisiveness. Republican House Minority Leader Patrick Neville is very conservative, and he made it clear his party isn't backing away from hot-button issues, like expanding access to guns and trying to restrict access to abortion.
4: Finally, Vic, the new legislature features a lot of new faces this year.
5: Yeah, thanks to term limits, about a third of the General Assembly are folks who weren't around last year. Democratic Representative Leslie Harrod was beaming when I asked her what it felt like being on the House floor that first day.
6: It's a mix between chaos and excitement and
3: also, you know, emotional.
5: (laughs) We'll see how she's feeling by the time this session wraps up in May.
0: CPR's Vic Vela there speaking with Joanne Allen. Coming up, a new film about the largest excessive force payout in Denver Sheriff history. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A homeless man who died at the hands of guards at the Denver jail in 2010 is the subject of a new documentary. This film traces the life and death of Marvin Booker. His case resulted in a $6 million settlement, the highest payout in an excessive force case in Denver history. Wade Gardner made the film titled Marvin Booker Was Murdered. It premieres tomorrow night, and he joins my colleague, CPR's
7: Andrea Dukakis.
6: Wade, welcome to the show.
7: Andrea, thank you for having me. Who was Marvin Booker? Marvin Booker was an interesting, complex man. He uh, was from Memphis. He was a homeless street preacher, and his mission was to uh, help the hungry, and he loved feeding the homeless whenever he could.
6: And he preached on the streets of Denver, right?
7: Yes, his congregation were those that were uh, marginalized by society.
6: And what was the official line about how he died?
7: From the city of Denver? Yes. The city of Denver uh, claimed that he had died um, due to the, his actions um, caused by his starting a uh, scuffle in the downtown detention center where he was being uh, detained and waiting to be booked in.
6: And we'll talk in a bit about what the family uncovered. Just briefly, how did Booker end up in jail in the first place?
7: You know, simply just an outstanding warrant. And he just happened to be um, uh, uh, speaking with the police. He had a situation with the police and uh, they realized he had a outstanding warrant, which he claimed that he had fulfilled, and they had to take him in.
6: You tell the story of Booker's life and how he died through interviews with his family, friends, attorneys, and also with city officials. And you set out to illustrate Booker as a human being who was loved and admired. Here's his brother, Reverend Spencer Booker, talking about Marvin Booker's death.
5: Somebody now is missing. Somebody's missing in our family. And they're not missing because of natural causes. They're not missing because of of God saying, this is your time. But somebody is missing in our family because five chefs who should have been protecting and serving him has now murdered him.
6: There's this common thread from Marvin Booker's family that the city treated him as a nobody because he was poor, black, and homeless. What made them feel that someone else might have been treated more like a somebody?
7: They simply demonized Marvin Booker during the trial. And that was their defense as to why the city and the deputies were justified in killing a man. And by demonizing him, what do you mean? They tried to say that he lived on the streets, that he wasn't loved, that he was a cocaine addict. And they really portrayed him as bringing his death, his death happened because of his actions and who he was based on his uh, history.
6: Much of Booker's family lives in Memphis. He grew up there. His dad was a reverend, as are his brothers. And you spend a lot of time talking with Marvin's mother, Roxy Booker Walton. She's the matriarch of the family who's affectionately called Madeer. And the interviews with her this continued effort to paint Marvin Booker as a human being who is deeply loved. And at one point, she talks about herself and how she spent much of her life helping people who are sick and struggling. That's what God give me. To take care of the sick and go visit them and pray for them and give them a ride to church. And that is my ministry. But right now, I got to get myself back together to do it. And I ain't together. You're not not right now. At the end, she's referring to the fact that uh, she's having a very hard time getting over the death of her son In any case, the family comes to Denver to try to get to the bottom of this, and they try to get a tape of the incident, and they're just stymied all the way. What did the city tell them about why they were reluctant to give them the tape?
7: The city tried to deny, delay, and discourage the Booker family from learning about Marvin's death. It took nine months before they released the video. And during that time, the family had no idea whatsoever what happened to Marvin. They were hearing some rumors, and of course, things started to get out from from those that happened to be at the detention center that evening, waiting also to be booked in. And the city just continued to disrespect this family's quest to learn about what happened to their brother, loved one, and son.
6: When the family finally gets the tape, it's hard to see exactly what's going on. But you see several people around and on top of Marvin Booker. It's in a central part of the jail. Describe what you and the family saw versus what the city said happened.
7: Unfortunately, what we saw in the tape of the death of Marvin Booker was a man being brutally beaten by five sheriff's deputies. The attorney, Mr. Thomas Rice, who defended, tried to defend the the defendants and the deputies, claimed that it was Mr. Booker's actions that led to him being um, beaten to death. Uh, The family knew that Marvin was not somebody—he was 56 years old, he weighed 135 pounds, he had been living on the street, and the family knew that Marvin was not a violent person. As a matter of fact, his love of Martin Luther King led him to always lead a nonviolent life.
6: This is CPR's Colorado Matters. I'm Andrea Dukakis. We're speaking with Wade Gardner, who made the film about Marvin Booker, who died at the hands of sheriff's deputies at the Denver Jail in 2010. City's uh, officials discourage the family from suing, but eventually they do. At the trial, sheriff's deputies are questioned, and what they say often doesn't add up. Here's the Reverend Timothy Tyler of the Shorter Community AME Church in Denver. He knew the family and got involved in the case, and he's talking about some of the trial testimony from one of the sheriff's deputies.
7: When the first sheriff deputy got on the stand, they asked her, they said, Is it true? That you have been um, charged in the past with lying in other excessive force cases. And she said, oh, no, I've never been charged with lying. They said, well, it's not true. She said, no, I was not charged with lying. She said, I was charged with departing from the truth.
6: Even today city officials stand by the idea that the deputies did what they were trained to do. Four of the deputies are still at the jail. Another is in law enforcement somewhere else. What does the city say about why they're still in their jobs?
7: the city has no response as to why they're in their jobs. They still believe that the deputies did nothing wrong. And as Daryl Kilmer from the law firm Kilmer Lane and Newman so eloquently stated uh, in regards to that clip, the, the, the term departing from the truth is a euphemism that the city continues to use so that those deputies, as this in this example, know that they can get away with concocting a story to try and uh, bamboozle the community against their own actions.
6: So the jury rules in favor of the Booker family, as we said, and they're awarded the highest payout in the city's history in an excessive force case, $6 million. It was an enormous feat for the family, and you were there. Talk about that day.
7: That was an amazing day. It was an emotional day, but it was a bittersweet day in that the family to this day still believes they did not get any justice. We have a family of clergy, very religious uh, family. Um, They believe in the law. And what they encountered and the way they were treated during the trial, what led up to the trial, then during the trial, they walked away, even though they had won a settlement, they still don't have their brother back, their son or their loved ones. And it was so bittersweet to this day, they still believe that it was an injustice.
6: For What would justice look like for them? Justice look like
7: to them would be having some accountability placed on those five deputies that had killed Marvin Booker.
6: There's a strange twist uh, on that day that's at the end of your film. Marvin Booker's sister-in-law collapses on the jail steps where they're celebrating the verdict, and paramedics come. Explain what happens.
7: Yeah, it was an amazing day. It was so emotional, and it had been a long trial. And uh, I had grabbed a camera. I didn't have a camera. And that morning, I happened to grab a camera from a friend. And I knew I had to go down to the front of the downtown detention center and cover the events. And during the uh, discussion before they were going to release the balloons uh, to commemorate Marvin's passing, uh, Gail Booker, Spencer Booker's wife, uh, fainted. And the ambulance came, and the ambulance driver happened to also be the paramedic who we see in the video, who is attending to Marvin after he's taken out of his isolation cell, and the Booker family, as gracious and as loving as they they are, they realized that he was the same person, and uh, it brought this sense of closure to that day for them because the paramedic confirmed that indeed Marvin was dead in the cell, where the city tried to deny and said that Marvin apparently didn't pass away until he got to the hospital. And what's interesting in the film is Dr. Reverend uh, Timothy Tyler then gives us his explanation uh, in that maybe that event was God blinking.
6: Hmm. And many of the sheriff's deputies testify that uh, he had moved when he was in the jail cell. And this paramedic, again, confirms that that's not what happened. Um, you interview several city officials, including Stephanie O'Malley, who's the manager of safety. We reached out to her and she declined to comment. Uh, were you surprised that she agreed to speak with you for the film?
7: I was. And what was interesting was although she agreed to speak, we were told we only had 30 minutes and that she would not talk about Marvin Booker, the Marvin Booker case.
6: Mm. What was it about um, this particular case that, you know, grabbed you? You spent so long making this film. What is it about Marvin Booker?
7: Marvin Booker's, the, the events surrounding Marvin Booker's murder was a watershed moment in Denver. Especially for the activist community and those that were fed up with how Denver has treated its citizens, the constitutional rights of its citizens, starting with Paul Childs, then going to Lobato. And then I think what really set it off was we had the Emily Rice case. Um, And those percolated through the community. And I think when Marvin was killed, the community said, enough is enough. We have to regain our constitutional rights as citizens. Because as Marvin's daddy, B.R. Booker, said, if you don't say anything, it can be you next time.
6: And those cases you mentioned were all cases of uh, excessive force. Um, And you're releasing this as Martin Luther King Day approaches. And a lot's happened since Marvin Booker's death when it comes to excessive force cases around the country, especially those targeting black men. Um, How has the climate changed since Booker's death?
7: I don't think the climate has changed at all. What I think is happening is that those around the country are satisfied that they're recording these events on their cell phones. It's much deeper than that. I think as our story proves, it's not what happens when you have the video because not only do we have video of his death, but we had 30 witnesses that were there. It's really what happens once the city has to investigate their own And what I'm seeing, especially in this story, is that in Denver's case, they decided to protect the Thin Blue Line instead of the constitutional rights of a citizen.
6: Wade, thanks so much for being with us.
0: Thank you. Wade Gardner made the film Marvin Booker Was Murdered, about a homeless man who died at the hands of sheriff's deputies at the Denver jail. He spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. The film premieres tomorrow night at the Cleo Parker Robinson Theater in Denver. Still to come, finding Edward Abbey. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The grave of Western writer and environmentalist Edward Abbey is said to be where no one would find it. But author Sean Prentice tried. Prentice's Colorado cabin served as his base. He chronicled the journey and conversations with some of Abbey's closest friends in his book, Finding Abbey. Let's listen back to our conversation from last year.
8: Thanks so much for having me,
0: Ryan. Why don't we start with Edward Abbey himself. Here's a clip from a talk he gave at the Telluride Ideas Festival in 1986 when he said Americans had become slaves.
2: Never before in history have uh, slaves been so well-fed, well-medicated, lavishly entertained. But we are slaves nevertheless. Our popular culture television, rock music, home video, processed food, mechanical recreation, plastic architecture, is a culture of slaves. Furthermore, this whole grandiose structure is self-destructive. By enshrining the profit motive, that is, the love of power, as our guiding ideal, We encourage the intensive and accelerating consumption and exploitation of land, air, water, the natural world on which this elaborate structure depends for its continued existence. That is a taste of Abbey's worldview. That
0: was 30 years ago, and yet it sounds like he could be talking to an audience today. Uh, A friend says Abbey walked a line between activist and jerk, although the friend used a more colorful word. You write how Abby used even small actions to make a point. Tell us about how this environmentalist used littering as a statement.
8: Well, I read Desert Solitaire and the Monkey Wrench Gang when I was in college back in uh, 1994 at Western State College. And when I was reading the Monkey Wrench Gang, there's a scene, and I'll talk about this scene first, and then I'll take it you to that small action of littering. And in the Monkey Wrench Gang... The main character, George Washington, Hayduke drives a jeep down a highway, and he throws his beer cans and his beer bottles out the window and he litters the highway. And then Abby writes about that in an essay where he talks about uh, littering the highways, and he says, of course I littered the highways. Uh, it's not the beer bottles that are ugly, it's the highway that's ugly. Hmm. And I always hated Abby in that moment for promoting littering. It just seemed like such a, a silly thing to be promoting there were so many big environmental issues we needed to worry about, and Abby was condoning throwing uh, beer bottles out the window. But then later on, I was talking to one of Abby's great friends, Ken Slight, and Ken was talking about a moment he and Abby had down at Glen Canyon Dam. And they were in the parking lot of Glen Canyon Dam, and it was brand new. It was flooding Glen Canyon, which Ken Slight deeply loved and it was creating Lake Powell, and, and Ken Slight never called it by that name. He only ever called it Lake Fowl. <laughs> but when when he and Abby were there, they were just watching the water back up, and they were watching this, this reservoir get created, and they were watching this canyon get destroyed, and they couldn't figure out how to stop it. They tried to stop the dam from being built, and they had failed repeatedly. They'd done everything they could, and, and they had lost, and they were just filled with rage over this destruction. So They went back to their car, and they found a whole box of beer bottles that they were going to take to get recycled. And what they decided to do was to take those beer bottles and smash them in the parking lot. And Ken Sleight, when I talked with him, his voice was just filled with emotion, and he recognized that it wasn't a very powerful protest. There were so many bigger things they had tried to do but failed at doing. But this was what they were left with. And after they threw the bottles, uh, Ken looked at me and he said, uh, you know that was that was a true protest, and uh, and I did it then, and, and we would do it again if that was the only thing we had left to do, and that was just one of the beautiful moments of Abby with one of his friends, Ken Slight, you know, making an environmental statement in any way possible,
0: mm, big and small. Tell us what you knew about Abby's grave before you started looking for it.
8: Well, again, I started reading Abby back in college, and slowly I started hearing about this mythical grave. And I think of it kind of like Henry David Thoreau's shack. It's this mythical, mythical place. Hmm. But I, I knew very little about it. I knew that when Abby died in 1989, that four of his friends drove him mountain to a desert. I knew that they dug a hole and buried him illegally on public lands, and that his grave was this mystery out there somewhere in the West, somewhere in some desert. And that was as much as I knew at the time.
0: I am going to reserve uh, comments on on what you find, if anything. Um, We'll leave that a mystery for readers of the book Finding Abbey. We're speaking with its author, Sean Prentiss. Interestingly, Abbey grew up in a town called Home in Pennsylvania, and he lived in East Coast cities at various times, but he really didn't want to stay in those places because he was drawn to the West and the Southwest in particular. What was it that, that pulled him here?
8: I think it was the, the land as a self-willed place. And the term wilderness comes from uh, the term self-willed. And what I mean by that is back east, so much of the land has been developed. It has been farmed. It has been uh, turned into cities or towns. It has been changed and marked. But out west, especially in Abbey's day, so much of that land was still wild. And the land could be seen as original or authentic and and humans for the most part were living with that wildness much more than on the East coast. And you mentioned earlier that you don't want to talk about what I find at the end of the book, but one thing I'll mention that I find at the end of the book that ties to this is the idea of home. And Abby spent so much of his time bouncing back and forth between the East coast and the West, because he'd get pulled to the East coast by uh, girlfriends and, and, and families and wives, but he could never stay there because he always wanted to get back to those wild lands, those lands where he felt much closer to nature. So he would always leave. And the one thing that Abby taught me by the end of the book was to figure out what home means to, to you and, and where to find that home. That's why Abby kept bouncing back and forth, because he kept looking for home and he kept looking for that wildness of the West.
0: And he and you meditate in this book on the question of whether when a person goes into the wilderness, whether he or she is wild. Um, what's the answer?
8: Well, I would say that whether or not you go into wilderness, every human is always wild because we are, are animals. And we create this divide between humans and nature so often and on some level, levels, Abby saw that everywhere. But on other, other levels, Abby really loved the idea of separating land from humans. His biggest concern was overpopulation. And he saw that humans were overrunning wild lands. and I think he's very correct about that. But one of the problems with wilderness is that it says that humans have no place in those areas. And again, humans, we are animals. We have a role in every bit of land around us, just as the animals and the plants do as well. So I think Abby would argue more for wilderness, and I would view, I would argue for seeing all wild lands as something that need to be protected, but humans have to have a role in all those wild lands as well.
0: And it's interesting, Sean, your book is not the only recent coverage of Abby. There have been several other books and films out just in the last year. Uh, why do you think there's a resurgence of interest in him?
8: I think one of the big issues that we're seeing today is, is talk about climate change. And I mentioned that Abby's biggest cause that he promoted was to stop overpopulation. And I think overpopulation and climate change go hand in hand. So as we're looking at a world that's getting affected more and more by environmental issues, I think Abby's voice can bring a, a texture to that. So I think that's part of it. Another part, and we see this in our politics, in our TV, is that we love loud and brash things. and If you read Abby, you're going to find someone who is demanding, someone who is loud, someone who can be belligerent, someone who can be rude, uh, but who is always smart as well. So I think tone is another thing that yanks people in. And so often in this age, we hear about all the environmental destruction around us, and these are real and important things. But Abby also has fun. He has fun on the page, and he had fun in real life. So as you're reading about these environmental issues, so many writers, uh, we focus on the negative. But Abby often looked at the joy that could be had while doing all this. Hmm. And then finally, you just can't get away from his great writing. He was a super, super writer. You've got to read Fool's Progress, Desert Solitaire, some spectacular work.
0: Yeah, what would you put at the top of the list? If, if a listener were going to read one Edward Abbey book.
8: I'm going to give you two for creative nonfiction Desert Solitaire, it changed the way we viewed nature writing, changed the way we looked at nature and the environment, and then for a novel, I think The Fool's Progress is a beautiful, beautiful novel. It's one of the few novels that makes me cry every time I read the ending.
0: Oh, goodness, which you've done multiple times, it sounds like. Sean, thanks for being with us.
8: Ryan, thanks so much for having me.
0: Sean Prentiss wrote Finding Abbey, The Search for Edward Abbey and His Hidden Desert Grave. We spoke back in July. There's an excerpt from the book, photos of people and places Prentice visited on his search, and links to recordings of Abbey at cprnews.org. Colorado Matters wants to welcome its new fellow, Michael Elizabeth Sackis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.